So I want to share two verses, and then I'll share my testimony. And these verses kind of intersect with one thing I want to em- emphasize in my testimony. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can go to Romans chapter 5. When I was thinking about my salvation story, how I got saved, just so those of you who don't know me, I got saved, born again, became a Christian, age 19. I was a freshman in college, just to kind of give you a little context, and did not grow up in a Protestant Bible-believing church. So for 18 years, my family, we didn't study the Bible. I didn't go to, I went to a church, but I didn't go to a church that actually taught the Bible. So I knew Zippo pretty much about the Bible for a good 17, 18 years. So I wanted to read Romans 5. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul's probably writing this epistle to the Romans. There are Christians in Rome. It's probably the mid or early 50s AD. So this is a good 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, The Apostle Paul's been saved maybe 15 years. He's been planting churches. He hasn't met the Romans yet, but he wanted to go to the Roman church, and he writes this very long epistle in anticipation to let them know uh, gospel truth and also his plans for coming to see them. And here in chapter 5, he's talking about the gospel, the benefits of the gospel, how God saves people. Um, And at the beginning, he's explaining that we were sinful, wicked enemies of God, And then God in His grace and mercy invaded the life of a sinner to save them. And God saves people on His initiative. As sinners, we run from God. Like, remember Adam running into the bushes? Running and hiding out of shame, guilt. That's what we do as sinners. We we run from God. God runs after us. He pursues us. That's the picture of salvation. So that's kind of the idea here of what Paul is talking about. In verse 8, so Romans 5 verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, us who were formerly lost, wicked, evil, didn't know God, didn't love God, didn't pursue God. Nevertheless, God demonstrates His own love toward us, pathetic sinners, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, as Christians today, this is kind of a well-known verse Usually, as Christians, we think about this verse and apply it immediately and directly to us today, which we can do, but the immediate context in the history of the Apostle Paul was a little different than how we understand and apply this verse, because literally, let's reread it again in light of this truth. The Apostle Paul was alive while Jesus was alive. The Apostle Paul was being trained as a legalistic, fastidious Jew while Jesus was alive. Paul did not commiserate, hang out with, follow the disciples of Jesus while Jesus was alive. The Apostle Paul was probably in another area. He was studying under Gamaliel and and other Jewish scholars and leaders. Paul was not saved. Actually, Paul wasn't Paul while Jesus was alive. Paul was Saul. That was his name. So when Jesus does his three-and-a-half-year ministry... Paul's not really familiar with Jesus' ministry. He's not following Jesus everywhere. He may have never even seen Jesus during that three and a half years, even though Paul was alive. So what was Saul 
the entire time Jesus is doing a three and a half year ministry. Paul is unsaved. He's not born again. He's arrogant. He's proud. He's self-righteous. He's a legalist. He doesn't fully know God for who he is. He doesn't understand who the Messiah is. He is not saved. He's still a child of Satan, even though he thinks he's the most spiritual guy around. So maybe when Jesus was doing his three-and-a-half-year ministry, Saul may have been in his 20s, a rising star in the Jewish community, very intelligent, very gifted, very driven, but an enemy of God and hostile to God. And particularly, had he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, he would have been very antagonistic to it. We know that because that eventually became true. So Paul could be writing personally, looking back, saying, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were sinners, while, and Paul's talking to the Romans, and so this has literal historical fulfillment. Hey, guys, you were pagans. You were lost. If you were Jewish, you didn't know Christ. When Jesus was alive, when Jesus was doing his ministry, we were unbelievers. We were enemies of God. We were children of wrath. And even though that's how we were living our lives at the time, Jesus died for us anyway. So that's quite a profound truth if Paul really personalizes this to himself. He didn't deserve God's love. He didn't deserve God's grace or mercy. He was a vile sinner, an enemy of God. Nevertheless, God in his great love towards sinners and that while Paul was still a sinner, Paul was an enemy of the cross, nevertheless, Jesus died for people like him anyway. Amazing truth. And we see that when Jesus is on the cross, for those six hours hanging there, he said at least seven things. He said more than that. But seven statements are recorded that he said, and one of those towards the end, probably the end of his uh, seven, six hours of hanging on the cross, was, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. This would apply, this is exactly what Paul's talking about. Forgive those who crucified me. Forgive those who rejected me. Forgive those who kill me. Forgive those who are saying they reject me. Have grace and mercy on them. That would have been the Apostle Paul. People like him. So, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. Anybody here that's a Christian today can actually apply this truth to their own life. This is our autobiography. Same thing. We can't say it in a way that the Apostle Paul can in that he was alive during the ministry of Jesus. He was alive when Jesus died. But the truth still applies to us, right? Because God demonstrates his own love towards us as sinners, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, Christ didn't die while we were alive. He died 2,000 years ago. But he did die for sinners, and that promise is for sinners of all ages, and that's why it applies to us. So that's basically my testimony. Uh, God saved me when I was a pathetic, wicked, evil, God-hating sinner. He saved me anyway. Then uh, look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, see, we were enemies of God before we got saved. And I was an enemy of God for 19 years. For if we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God 
through the death of his son. So that's what happened to me. I was an enemy of God, and even though I was an enemy, God reconciled me unto himself. It's easy to get along with friends, right? It's easy to look, get along with people you think alike, people you do like, they like you. Easy to get along with them. How hard is it to get along and be, get along with people you don't like, get along with enemies, or even be reconciled to your enemy? For us, that's humanly impossible. But that's what God did for us as sinners. He reconciled us as sinners through the death of His Son. So, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So, here's now where I want to talk about my story and how I got saved. Uh, I said earlier, I, wasn't a, I didn't grow up in a Bible-believing Protestant home for 19 years. I didn't grow up getting taught Scripture or the Bible. As a matter of fact, I didn't even get taught the Gospel. I remember hearing the Gospel one time in third grade, vividly remember it, and then again when I was 17. So I was 10 years old, probably the first time I ever heard the gospel, 10 years old. Even though I was in a religious home, even though I went to church regularly, because I went to a Catholic church, born in a Catholic home, went to 12 years of Catholic school, had 12 years of religion class at the Catholic schools, 12 years of religion class at the Catholic schools that was mandatory, taught by the nuns and the priests, and I never studied the Bible. I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church for three years. I went through all the sacraments in the Catholic Church, baptized eight days old, uh, first communion in first grade, then the sacrament of penance after that. Then I became an altar boy. When I was in elementary school, I had a desire. I thought, someday I think I'd like to be a priest because there was this religious desire in me. Even though I wasn't reading the Bible, wasn't being taught the Bible. So I had a lot of religion, but I didn't know the Bible. And at the same time, I was living like I didn't know God because it was very worldly, very pagan, very worldly, evil worldview. That's how I was raised. That was the kind of home I was in. Even though we were religious, even though during Lent we would, all 10 kids, wait, did I say 10 kids? Yeah, all 10 kids in the family, me being number 10, the youngest of the 10 kids, would kneel around my parents' bed in their bedroom on the rosary during Lent, praying to Mary Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed through thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Okay, there's one. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is Okay, there's two. I only have 32 more to go. Hail Mary, full of grace. I am not kidding. That's what we did. Then we would also do the Our Father. Our, oh, and then five Our Father. Our Father, our heaven, hell be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us a day. Okay, that's one. Ten more to go. So that was part of my life growing up. Never knew what it meant. Never even thought about the words. No one ever even explained the words. But the idea was just keep repeating these mantras and God will like you more. He'll cut you a little slack. He'll forgive last week's sins. Not going to forgive next week's sins, but He'll forgive last week's sins. So guess what you got to do next week? Do it all over again. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou among women. 
That is not an exaggeration. So that's what I was taught for the 12 years in Catholic school and the 18 years that I went to the Catholic church. It was just strictly external, shallow, uh, legalistic, ritualistic, man-made religion that had nothing to do with the Bible. No gospel. Going back to when I first heard the gospel, it was third grade, probably 10 years old. Never forget it. Because my, my parents were avid Roman Catholics. They believed and they taught you cannot be saved outside of the Catholic Church, which is consistent with formal Roman Catholic doctrine, especially the Council of Trent in the 1500s. That's what they said. They put it in writing, and then that was reconfirmed in the Catechism in 2000 by Pope John Paul II. You can't be saved outside the Roman Catholic Church. So that's what a good Catholic believes and holds to and teaches their children and live accordingly, and that's what we were taught. So all other religions were anathema. All other options were anathema. Protestant churches were anathema, cursed, not legitimate options, shouldn't listen to them, they're false teachers. We knew that, that's what we were taught. So when we're 10 years old, and when I was 10 years old, which would have been in around 1976, basically we only had three channels on the, t on the TV. You didn't have cable, you didn't have a zillion options. It was CBS, NBC, and ABC, that was it. Oh, and then the public channel, it was terrible. Never got, never got reception on the public television. But anyway, so my brothers and I, we like sports, and so I'm 10, and my other brother's 11, and my other brother's 12, and we're in my mom's bedroom, and there's nobody around. We have a TV. It's pretty cool. I, I think this one was color, and it was about this big. Color television, about this big. Very exciting. So we're all scrunched up and watching it, and we're flipping through the channels, and then there's this fiery guy preaching, and he's got a suit on and a tie, and there's a big old football stadium and there's thousands of people and we stop and we're intrigued whoa and this guy's talking about Jesus Christ and he's got a Bible and he's holding it up like this and he's preaching with passion with fire and it's very simple we understand everything he says this is stuff we've never heard before it's about religion it's about God it's about the Bible he's actually reading from the Bible and explaining it in a way that we can understand that we are all sinful and we were born that way and God must punish sin, and yet God in His mercy, because He's a loving God, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, down here to pay the penalty of sin by dying on a cross and rising again from the dead. And if you believe that and repent of your sin and believe in Christ, that you can be born again, you can be forgiven, all your sins can be forgiven, you can be adopted in the family of God, you can receive the gift of eternal life, you can't work for it, you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, it's a free gift from God, no one deserves it. You don't have to go through religious rituals. All you have to do is cry out to the God, the creator of the universe, who made you. Call on him, repent, and believe, and you will be saved. You'll be born again. You'll become a Christian. God will change your life. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. We're listening to this, and we're like, wow. This is scandalous. This is different. This is intriguing. This is interesting. This is appealing. This was Billy Graham. So we're watching this for about 10 minutes, and then we heard somebody coming up the stairs. We thought it was our parents, so we shut the door and then turned the channel real quick. And we made a vow. Don't tell anybody what we just saw. So we kept it under wraps for nine years. Anyway, so it wasn't until actually for me it was seven years. Seven years later where I met a Christian who explained the gospel the same way. It's like, whoa, I've heard that before. That's interesting. 
That's intriguing. I didn't drop down on my face and repent, though. I still liked my sin. I liked my independence. Bowing the knee to a Lord and Master named Jesus was kind of scary. I didn't want to do that. So there was a war going on, and it was between me and God, especially at age 17 when I heard the gospel. Okay, the second verse I want to share to kind of interweave into my testimony here would be Acts 17 if you have your Bible. Acts 17, I'm going to say starting at verse 22. So Paul's on his, one of his missionary journeys. He's going through Greece, in particular he's going through Athens, very you know, well-known, prestigious city, somewhat on the decline in Paul's day. But anyway, just a great reputation. It's learning, smartest men in the history of the world who claimed at one time to live there. But they weren't completely secular, they were religious. But they were pagans, complete and total pagans, totally caught up in idolatry, idolatry, meaning worshiping statues, and a gazillion of them. That's why this reminds me of Roman Catholicism and how I was raised. You go into a Catholic church, at least the ones that I grew up in, there were statues everywhere, images, and particularly statues everywhere, statue of Mary, statue of Joseph. There's always a statue of Mary in the front of a Catholic church, usually on the left-hand side over there or the right-hand side over there. Statues everywhere. If you're a good Catholic, you've got statues all over your house. And we did. We had statues everywhere. We had statues in every room. Mary, Joseph, the living room, we had the big picture of Jesus. I don't know if it was Jesus, though. We were told it was Jesus. This blonde hair and blue eyes, flowing down. Um, but it was in the main room of the house, so that was, it was prominent, and it was one of the first things you saw when you walked in there. A very Catholic picture of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. It was there my whole life. And then statues everywhere in our bedroom where the three boys were. And we were wild and crazy like boys would be. We played tackle football in our bedroom routinely and full-court basketball and soccer and everything else. Nevertheless, over in the corner, we had about five shelves, and on every shelf we had statues. We had statues of Joseph, Mary, Catholic saints, St. Christopher, images, Jesus, the crucifix, which is everywhere all over the house. Jesus still on the cross. Uh, we were to revere them. We were to pray to them. They were sacred. We weren't really to touch them. We were to honor them. We were to venerate them. And then uh, say, I'm throwing a touchdown pass to one of my brothers, and it flies over into the corner and knocks like Mary off the shelf, and she lands on the ground. Number one, that was a, a mortal sin, so I had to go to confession. Number two, I had to pick it up off the ground. Hopefully, she wasn't broken. And then I had to kiss her statue and then put it back on the shelf. And that's, I'm not kidding, that's how we were trained, that's what we did. Uh, in the event that uh, my pass was too long, again, and my brother couldn't catch it, and then it knocks Mary over, and then she falls to the ground and it breaks, shatters, that's terrible. That's almost an unforgivable sin. And then we were required, by this time there were like six of us still living at home, and then my older, older sister, she would take care of this. We would take Mary, we'd put her in a little shoebox, all the pieces. Then we'd go out to the backyard, and then she'd wrap it with a rubber band or whatever, and then we'd dig a hole, and then we'd have a burial service for the broken statue of Mary. And then we would all throw dirt on top of it and bury it, put rocks over it so our German shepherd wouldn't dig it up, and we would pray. Uh, that's not a fictitious story, that's, that's true. That's what we did, that's what we were taught to do. 
That's how I grew up as a Catholic. Now, none of this had anything to do with the Bible. But anyway, let's go back to Acts 17. So Paul's going through very pagan, idolatrous people, but they're very religious, but it's not informed by the Bible. And so Paul comes to the public square there in Athens, one of the largest, most prestigious, highly populated cities on planet Earth in that day. It's probably just broad daylight. He's walking around, never been to Athens as far as we know, so he was probably very intrigued by everything of the stories that he had heard. And he's out milling around, goes into the public square there, he goes to the Areopagus, and he starts talking to the men there who are kind of the leaders of the city, highly educated. They were quite arrogant, by the way, full of themselves. And he said to them, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. So he didn't go in there and just say, oh, you're a bunch of pagans, you're going to hell. He said, because he, he made an observation. Wow, man, I've been walking around the city, and there, there are religious statues, religious temples, religious things all over the place. You guys are very religious. There are people who aren't religious today and throughout history. These people were religious. I observed that you are very religious in, in all respects. They prayed. They probably made sacrifices. They had temples. They had priests. They probably had some kind of revered literature that they read and recited, so they were religious in all respects, but not a good thing. There's good religion and bad religion. Uh, 23, for a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. He was literally looking at the object. Oh, look at that statue. Whoa, that one's kind of scary. What's that all about? Go up, touch it. What's that made of? Oh, it's got an inscription. So Paul's investigating all this stuff, as you would in a museum that you were intrigued to be walking through. For a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. So he finds this religious altar, and it's got an inscription on it. Because most of their uh, idols represented somebody, whether it was Zeus or whoever, dedicated to actually somebody with a name. You know, they had all kinds of so-called Greek gods. So then he comes to one that intrigued him. He's like, wow, this is weird. The inscription literally on it said, to an unknown god. So the idea was they, they didn't want to miss any of the gods out there so that they could appease them. Oh, we forgot about the god of uh, the weather. Boy, we better appease him. And so he gets his own statue. And oh, yeah, the goddess of fertility. Boy, we can't make her mad. We better give her her statue. And then it was like, okay, in case we forgot anybody, let's make another one. And we'll just say to the unknown god. Now we got everybody covered. And no gods can be mad at us. To an unknown god. Therefore, Paul says, you got a statue here, or an idol, with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, you don't even know this God's name. And actually, Paul finds common ground here. He's telling these pagans that, you know what? The, all these idols, all your religion gives evidence that you know there is a God. You know there is a creator. You know you're accountable to him. You know that he is the judge. That's why you're trying to appease him with all that you're doing. And you don't even know his name. So you know what? I'm going to tell you his name. He has a name. There's his common ground. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, so the world isn't eternal. The world didn't evolve or poof out of nothing. It was made directly by God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not a man. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, so that's a rebuke to all their gods dwelling in temples made with hands. 
He's just giving a, a basic theology lesson on who God is. Verse 25, nor is this God, the true God, served by human hands as though He needed anything. And they, the Greeks believed that their God needed stuff. He needed some help. He wasn't completely sovereign, omnipotent, self-sufficient. And Paul says, no, yeah, He is. doesn't need anything from you. God doesn't need anything from anybody. Since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. We all came from Him. He is the giver of all things. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. Verse 26, and this one God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. By the way, all of us here, even though you are Athenians, you are Greeks, I am Jewish, I am Roman, we all came from the same God. Because this creator in the beginning created two people, Adam and Eve, and they were literal. And every single one of us came literally from their loins, literally from their blood. That's what he means in verse 26. And he made from one. In other words, because the Greeks, they were arrogant. They looked down their nose in a condescending way at people who weren't like them or of their race. Oh, the Spartans. <laughs> Even worse, the, the Persians and on and on. And Paul's saying, no, we all have the same blood, same creator. So here's a lesson in anthropology from the Bible, and he made from one man every nation, mankind to live on the face of the earth. And here's my verse that I wanted to share about my testimony. Everybody came from Adam and Eve. Every nation came from Adam and Eve. Every person came from the loins of Adam, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and God having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. There it is. God, the creator of the universe, predetermined before the foundation of the world in eternity past, where every sing, what every single nation would be and exist in history, where that nation would be allocated on planet Earth. The United States is here because God determined the United States would be here in this hemisphere. And that's been true of every nation throughout history. God determined that. He predetermined that. Not only that, it applies to people too. Why were you born where you were born? Well, God determined the boundaries of where you were born. I was born in Denver, Colorado. Why was I born in Denver, Colorado? Well, on a human level, that's where my parents lived when I was born. But in the big scheme of things, God determined long before creation that I should be born in Denver, Colorado. That was God's plan. He had a plan for that, for His purposes. The same is true for you. Not only did God determine where I would be born, He also determined the boundaries of people's habitation. That means where they would be born. So when they would be born and where they would be born. The time when they would be born, the place they would be born. So I was born in Denver, Colorado in 1966 in a Roman Catholic home because God determined that to be so before the foundation of the world. I know people actually who don't like where they were born or, and they don't like the family they were born into. God, why'd you give me these parents? Well, it says right here. That was God's plan. He gets more explicit about why we were born and when we were born, verse 27, in order that, so God determines when you're going to be born, where you're going to be born, in order that, for the purpose of, so that, according to his plan, verse 27, so that they would seek God. There it is. In God's infinite wisdom, God knew that it would be best, in keeping with his perfect will, that this Cliff McManus guy, born a total sinner who needed to be born again, it would be best and perfect in keeping with God's plan that I be born in Denver in 1966 so that I could perfectly fulfill the plan that he had determined. And in his grace, that happened. 
So I look back at my life over 52 years from where I was born, the family I was born to, the people I was raised with, the schools that I went to, the people that I met, the connections that were made, all this networking. And you can just see the hand of God crafting everything, almost like he personally tailored it just for me, that I might be saved and that I might serve him, hopefully faithfully. And that's true of every Christian. You can really look back into your life, if you're discerning, if you're observant, and see kind of the fingerprints in the molding hands of God, personally kind of tailoring and orchestrating your life, warts and all, Romans 8, 28, all for, his, for your good, all for His glory. And that's what God did for me. So just there's two amazing verses in their context, Romans 5, Acts 17, that I always think about for me. So just now kind of a, a whirlwind summary of my testimony in light of a lot of information I've already given you. Having been born in Denver, Colorado, into a Roman Catholic home, a Roman Catholic neighborhood, really. Everybody around that I knew, for the most part, was Roman Catholic. Uh, three buildings down was the big Roman Catholic cathedral where I went to church, to Mass, more than once a week. Across the street, four houses over, was the rectory where the priests lived. Behind the church on the same block was the convent where about 15 nuns lived. I lived in this house for 18 years. Everybody around me, for the most part, was Catholic. Therefore, everybody around me, for the most part, had large families, many children. When I was growing up in my neighborhood, we must have had 150 kids in the neighborhood. That was kind of cool. Play a lot of games. There was, we didn't have video games. We played outside with all the kids. We played wholesome things like ditch them. That was hide-and-seek using the entire neighborhood. There were things we did that weren't wholesome either. I will refrain. Anyway, but grew up in a religious home, Catholic home, sheltered in terms of not being exposed to other religions at all, very ignorant, very naive of other views. So the Catholic Church and my parents did a good job at that in terms of fulfilling their purpose. I was the youngest of, still am actually, of 10 children. Something interesting that had an impact on me. Our family was very close. It was an interesting dynamic. For the most part, we didn't really have friends outside of our family members. So the order was, the oldest in our family was my sister, who's probably 13, 14 years older than me. And then there were three boys. Those three boys were best buddies. They hang out and did everything together. Even to this day, they're in their 60s. And the oldest sister, the four of them, they were best buddies. Then there was another set of three, three sisters, after the three brothers. To this day, they are as close as can be, always have been. And then the last three, me and my two brothers, uh, we were not close. One brother became a Christian after I did, but we never really were close. But point being that we didn't have friends outside of our family, so we were a very tight-knit, close family growing up uh, as a Catholic family, and we all went to church together. We were all pretty much had to go to church and expected to go to the Catholic church and expected to become altar boys, which we did. But probably by the time I was in early, I mean, maybe second grade, a trend that started happening to my older siblings, who I respected, liked, wanted to be like, was close to, one by one, and all, when they were 18, Happened first with my oldest sister. At age 18, I heard my older siblings talking in our kitchen 
And it was a very tense conversation, and they're trying to keep it secret from dad because dad wouldn't like this. And they're going on. I mean, I'm in second grade, and they're going on and on about how my oldest sister at age 18 had become a moron. I'm like, what? And, it, and it apparently it was a religion of some sort and had a shady uh, history to it and all these weird beliefs, and they could become gods and marry all kinds of wives and whatever. Because I'd heard the word moron before. And then they straightened me out and said, no, your older sister has become a Mormon. I'm not trying to make fun of her, but that's just what I thought because I was only nine years old. So then my siblings explained to me what Mormonism was. I'm like, so what's the big deal? Why is dad so mad? Well, it's, you know, there's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. So basically, my oldest sister, she was booted out of the family. I don't know if you ever saw Fiddler on the Roof, but for those of you who have, you go against the family's religion, you're out. And that was true of my oldest sister. So that was traumatic for me. That was um, unfortunate. Then the next one, 18, my, older, my oldest brother, he, at 18, he went off to college. That was not expected. That was against my parents' will. My parents didn't go to college or graduate. We were not expected to go to college. We were not encouraged to go to college. As a matter of fact, we were encouraged to stay home and work for the family business, a painting, contracting, painting family. But out of rebellion, although he didn't think it was rebellion, he just had a desire he was a musician, and he wanted to go to college and study music. So he went to actually the Boston School of Music at age 18, left the family, became a Hindu under the auspices of transcendental meditation following the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. When my dad found out about that, he's out. So there's two down. Then my next brother, when he was 18, he left the home, and he moved to Texas. He was a musician as well. And he abandoned the Catholic Church. And he became a Taoist. Taoism, Eastern religion, and began studying that. Still does to this day here. It is what, 50, 40 years later? Well, when my dad found out about that, he's out. Three in a row. Then my next brother, age 18, same thing. He went off to college. That made him a rebel. He was supposed to stay home and work for the family business. He stayed Catholic for a while. So he's in. But we didn't see him much after he left. He didn't want to come back. Then next sister, age 18. This was my closest sibling. I'm like in junior high now. Age 18. She becomes a Mormon. She becomes a Mormon under the influence of my oldest sister who proselytized her. She becomes a radical, zealous, proselytizing Mormon. All in, fully committed. From her understanding now, she's a true Christian. She understands the King James Bible, and she has more religious scriptures than the Catholics do. She's so committed, she goes on a mission trip for women that lasted a year and a half, which was, uh, and so she went around the country doing that for a year and a half for the Mormon church. Well, when my dad found out she became a Mormon, she was out. So that's, what, four out of five? Then my next sister, close with her as well, age 18, same thing. All these siblings grew up in the Catholic church for, and also in the Catholic schools for 12 years. We all had 12 years of Catholic education. Next sister, age 18, like clockwork, 
She meets a guy, she falls in love. They get engaged. They're going to get married. Not necessarily with the blessing of my parents. They like the guy, though, because he's older, seems to be more mature, has a steady job, can provide for her, seems to care for her. Oh, okay, up. Then they find out during the process that he's a Jehovah's Witness. So in order for my sister to marry him, he is zealous, he's aggressive, he's proselytizing as a Jehovah's Witness, totally committed, converted to Jehovah's Witnessism later in his life. So he's a, a rabid con- convert. She actually loves him more than she loves Jehovah's Witnessism, so she agrees to convert to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and she does at age 18. My dad finds out about that, she's out. So now as a Jehovah's Witness, oh, big deal at the McManus house growing up? Birthdays, huge. Holidays, Christmas, presents galore. So she becomes a Jehovah's Witness, and one of the convictions or doctrinal beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses, when it all pans out, is you're not supposed to celebrate birthdays or Christmas. So she doesn't come to McManus' birthday parties. She doesn't give presents anymore. If we give her presents, she rejects them. She won't come around at Christmas. And that went on for years. So that was heartbreaking. So... My parents, particularly my dad, who raised us so diligently, worked so hard, sacrificed so much to pay the expensive tuition bills for 12 years of Catholic education. That was a tremendous undertaking on his part. And yet, one by one, he's seeing his children defy him. So it's taking a toll on him. So that was my Jehovah's Witness sister. She is aggressive. She she tries to proselytize us. All of my older siblings, once they converted to their new religion, they were all aggressively proselytizing the other siblings. So I was being pursued aggressively by my Mormon sisters, by my Hindu brothers, by my now Jehovah's Witness sister. As a freshman in high school, you guessed it, I am thoroughly confused. All this religion, why is everybody getting so mad at each other? How come my dad doesn't talk to anybody anymore? What's the big deal? You know what? I'm going to choose my own religion too. So that's probably 10th grade. I became an atheist. Now, I wasn't so stupid to tell my dad that. Because I know what would happen. So I continued to go to the Catholic Church. Actually, that's a lie. I'll get back to that. I continued to go to the Catholic school, the Jesuit all-boys Catholic school. I said I would still go to church. They had, you know, three masses a day. You could pick the 8.30, the the 10, or the 11 o'clock service. So I would always pick the shortest mass, and I'd always pick the one that my parents didn't go to, and then get dressed up for church or mass. You don't go to church when you're a Catholic. You go to mass. So say, okay, I'm going to mass, and then, you know, I leave at 10.59 to get there at 11 because it's three doors down. So I go out the front door. Go in the front door of the church in case mom and dad are watching. And then go to the right-hand side, go down the corridor, go out the back door of the church, go across the street, and go to Safeway and play Pac-Man for an hour. (laughs) 
come back. This went on for three years. I got really good at Pac-Man. <laughs> they thought I was going to church or mass. Anyway, uh, so that was me in ninth grade. So then there was my next sister when she was 18. She, uh, she was, yeah, Catholic still. Then she met a guy who was a Christian. He gave her the gospel. She got saved. She became a Christian. Oh, that's my brother-in-law. First, he was my friend that I played basketball with. He was 11 years older than me. He was my friend first. I think I kind of introduced her to my sister. And he started sharing the gospel with me. Age 17. First time I heard the gospel since Billy Graham. And it started to resonate. I knew it was true the first time he told me. I knew it was true. And he kept repeating it. We kept hanging out. Really cool guy. This guy's different. I like him. I want to be around him. And he, but he just kept giving me the gospel and telling me about Jesus and memorizing Bible verses. Every month or so he'd check in. So Cliff, do you believe everything I'm telling you? Yeah. Do you believe that Jesus is the Lord? Yeah. Do you believe what the Bible says? Yeah. Do you believe there's a heaven? Yeah. Do you believe there's hell? Yeah. Do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Yes. Do you believe if you died rejecting Jesus, you'd go to hell? Yes. Do you want to accept Jesus in your heart right now? No. So I did that for two years. But he was patient. In the meantime, so my sister marries him, becomes a Christian, then they get married. So that means there's two brothers left. And they're the ones a year and two years older than me. Um, the next brother, he got into drugs and pot and all that stuff in Colorado. Before it was legal in Colorado. Now it's not a controversy, it's something to celebrate. But anyway, uh, and he said he was Catholic, and then he started getting the gospel over the years, from me and another friend, and he became sympathetic to the gospel. So today I'm not quite sure where he is. And then there was the brother that's one year older than me, and he grew up very uh, obedient to the parents. He's partially autistic, and he just obeys and is very regimented and does everything mom and dad tell him to do. So he's a very committed, loyal Catholic for whatever that meant. But then when I got saved when I was 19 at college, came home and shared the gospel with him, he believed it like that and became a Christian. It's amazing. Autistic. Still has his autistic challenges, but what changed was on the inside. He had vicious temper tantrums before he got saved. And then when he got saved, there was this, this softening of his spirit. As an autistic person, there are idiosyncrasies and traits that go with that. Some are weaknesses, some are strengths. Well, the strength that he had was an incredibly photographic memory. It was like a mind like a computer. And he could go up to anybody and say, and he'd get in your face very close and say, uh, what's your name? And then you tell him your name and then say, uh, what's your birthday? What's your birthday? When were you born? When were you born? Um, September... 3rd, 1966, September 3rd, 1966, September 3rd, 1966, you were born on a Tuesday. I'm like, huh? You were born on a Tuesday. Uh, no, I was, well, well, I don't know. I don't know when I was born. You were born on a Tuesday. And then you go look it up. You were born on a Tuesday. How did you know that? How'd you do that? Oh, I memorized the calendars from 1900 to 1982. And he did. They were in our bedroom. So that's just one example. So he got saved, and then he could just memorize Scripture like crazy. It was very humbling 
and very challenging, very frustrating for me because here I am, I, go off to, I get saved, I go to college, and then I start studying the Bible, and I got to take Greek and memorize all that stuff, and then I go to seminary, and I got to memorize all this stuff, and it's really hard and arduous. And he just looks at a passage, and he's memorizing this like nobody's business. It's like, wow, to this day. So he's been saved uh, some 30 years, and he's at a church in Denver, and the church has him routinely, church of like 800 people, stand up in front of the church, and he'll recite maybe an entire chapter of Matthew 5 from memory before the pastor preaches on that passage. So it's kind of cool. Anyway, so that's the siblings. Uh, talked about how my dad over the years got very disappointed. So my dad got to a point, maybe when I was in college, where he just bailed on it all. Stopped going to the Catholic church and decided, psh, it doesn't matter. Uh, then for, my mom kept going faithfully to the Catholic church. Uh, then my Christian sister had a huge influence in my mom's life, giving her the gospel, telling her about Jesus. Uh, when my mom died mm, seven years ago, uh, my sister thinks she was a believer. She was in Denver. I spent many years away from my mom. But although we talked through the mail, old school, my mom would mail me Bible questions, and I would write her back for a good 10 years. So she was definitely interested in the Bible, so that was a good sign. Uh, and then my dad... Till he was 91. Was, then, oh, he started going back to the Catholic Church and a second wind that the Catholic Church is the only way. There's no salvation outside the Catholic Church. So that was disappointing. So he died last year when he was 91. And he was as hardened and um, unopened as you could possibly. I, on his deathbed, I was telling him about Jesus. Didn't want to hear it. Well, Dad, you're You're Catholic. Catholics believe in the Bible. So um, I don't know where my dad ended up going. So anyway, so that's my family background. Um, got saved, went to Santa Barbara, California, actually as a 19-year-old, wasn't saved, went to Westmont College, a 1,000 people at a quasi-Christian school in Santa Barbara, got saved while I was at Westmont, went there two years, uh, met this Debbie Sullivan girl while I was there, then I transferred to the Master's College as a junior and my girlfriend, Debbie Sullivan, stayed at Westmont. Uh, and then we, were wanted, then we got engaged, and then I asked uh, Debbie Sullivan's dad, my future father-in-law, can, can Debbie come transfer to the Master's College? No, I don't want her chasing her boyfriend around all over the place. Well, it's a better school, better theology, better preparation. No, I don't want to do that. And then, so then I talked to Pastor John MacArthur, my new pastor, and would you be willing to talk to my future father-in-law and tell him how wonderful the Master College is because he doesn't want her to come here. So he did. John MacArthur had an hour and a half lunch with my future father-in-law at the college, and I sat there in front of the double doors as they were having lunch behind the doors, and then the doors opened, and the Shekinah was shining, and future father-in-law said, let's sign her up for the Master's College. Anyway, so my, wife, my girlfriend transferred to the Master's College. We both graduated there. I majored in Bible. She majored in home ec and education, got her teaching credential there. Uh, then we got married right after I graduated from college. She still had two years of school. I went immediately into seminary. Then she became Debbie McManus. Then I was in the master seminary for three years. Uh, John MacArthur became my pastor along with the elders there down at the church. We were there for seven years, Grace Community Church. Wonderful time. Got involved in children's ministry as an intern. That's where I began to explore ministry and learn how to do it. Um, then after three years, we had our first child, Carissa, and then we had Brianna, and then we had two boys, 
Tim and Rustin, and now Rustin's 18 going off to college. Tim it will be a senior at the Master's College next year. Brianna's married uh, as of two years, and Carissa is 26 and lives in the Berkeley area. So those are the family members. Uh, all of my kids grew up at Grace Bible Fellowship Church Plant. We started in 2006. And my wife, Debbie, and I, we stay in regular daily contact with all of our kids, now that they're all kind of all out of the house, but still a delight to us. And been serving here at Grace Bible Fellowship since we started the church in 2006 with about 19 adults, and we didn't have a denomination or anybody supporting us. It was just these 19 people throwing money in a pot and then putting it in a bank account until we got enough where we could actually pay a pastor, and Cliff became the pastor, and that's all we had. And so we very, very small and scaled down and pared down. That's how we started 13 years ago, and we didn't have a building, so we rented a Seventh-day Adventist building in Mountain View and been renting Seventh-day Adventist buildings for 13 years uh, until God graciously brought us into a merge. And it's been a delight for 13 years to be at Grace Bible Fellowship and just see God grow the church, and He has. He's blessed. He's provided for us. He's helped us grow. I think Debbie, my wife, could attest that it's working at GBF, the church, because I worked at several churches, six, five or six churches before Grace Bible Fellowship. Texas, um, Utah, Southern California, several churches, worked under about six or seven senior pastors, many different staffs or whatever. Those were all established churches, been around. Most of them were had dysfunction here and there. I learned a lot. So when we started the church, I was just like telling our guys, let's just do what the Bible says instead of tradition or the power brokers or the wisdom of man. So we've been trying to do that. So my wife would say that she could attest that in 13 years, this is the only job I've ever had where I wasn't complaining about my job. I, I love my job. I love being a shepherd now at Creekside Bible Church. But God, that's a work of God, saving me, but then giving me, you got to have a heart for people. you got to love people. got to love people. That's what it all comes down to. you got to be able to deal with the, the dirty, messy stuff, too. I don't like to do that, but God enables me to do that with the help of others. you got faithful people serving around you. That makes such a huge difference. So it's been an absolutely blessing. And, and one of the highlights of our 13-year history definitely is God bringing us together, especially over the last year, with Creekside Community Church culminating in our church merge, of which we are now on our second Sunday. Can you believe it? How exciting is that? Amen. Well, that's my testimony. Uh, if you want to read more, I didn't want to repeat everything that's in the book. we got a book out there in the lobby called Rescued by Grace. It's got 13, so 15 testimonies of folks in our church, Grace Bible Fellowship, Derek Brown, one of our elders, me, uh, JR, one of our elders, Austin Thompson, and some of, some of the lay folk. Uh, good stories. I didn't want to repeat what was in the book, maybe give you something new. With that, anybody got any questions about the McManus family, the ministry, or, I know I didn't leave a whole lot of time, uh, or maybe church merge stuff relevant to me, my role, and what's ahead. And again, this is members. Member. Jane has a question. Jane Schindler, one of our members, right up yonder here. Jane? Thanks, David. Could you... Uh, review your actual salvation experience? Oh, yeah. I didn't do that. Sorry. Uh, so I was supposed to give my testimony. I didn't give my testimony. Um, <laughs> age 17, got the gospel 
loud and clear from Paul Mays, who would become my brother-in-law. He helped steer me to a Christian college, Westmont College, to go play basketball. Went there, didn't know anything about it, but I could play basketball because that's what I wanted to do. And then within two months, he'd been praying for me for two years. And then God put me at this college with two spirit-filled, committed, charismatic Christians. And here I am, just this pagan Roman Catholic. And they had praying mothers. And they met me on the first day of the college day, and they were scared to death for their sons. Because they could tell I was a pagan. Um, but I got saved within two months at Westmont College because of the witness of my brother-in-law for two years, the prayers of the saints, and then the witness of my two roommates who started taking me to these weird Protestant churches that teach the Bible. And then God in His grace saved me November 1st, 1985, at the end of the first basketball game of the season at Westmont College when they played Athletes in Action, and the Athletes in Action players at halftime gave their testimonies how they got saved. And that's just, whoa, you can be a cool basketball player and, whoa, love Jesus? Okay, I'm in. And boom, that's when I got saved. So it was a radical transformation. Thanks, Jane. Anybody else? Paige. What do you mean? What do you mean? Oh, you mean during my testimony? Oh, I kept saying my parents, my mom and dad, my parents, my parents. Yeah. Parents, parents, raised us Catholic, whatever. Um, had a good rapport with my uh, mom, actually always. And so when I became a Christian, she was kind of, whoa, it's a little too much. She didn't want to talk about it. But she softened with time. And then my sister was working on her because they were very close. And then she became open to the Bible. And that's when we had like probably a... 15-year dialogue through mail. She'd send me Bible questions, and I she's very intrigued, and that was very encouraging. And so my sister thinks that she believed in Jesus for salvation uh, prior to dying. So that was very encouraging. But I wasn't around my mom for almost 20 years. Because once I left Denver, went to California, never went back, met my wife, and very rarely did we uh, see our family. But I did communicate through telephone and letters. Uh, anybody else? Oh, way back there. Is that Carol? I can't even see. Martha? Karen? Oh, it's Karen. Okay. Shout it out. I'll come down there, and then I'll repeat your question. Go ahead, Karen. Can, can you um, explain the process that you decided um, to go to seminary, and how did it happen? And, okay. Uh, the process of going to seminary. Well, I got age, saved at age 19. Soft, and when I was a no, uh, freshman, and it was November, and it was such a radical transformation. I had such a voracious appetite for the Bible. I felt like I had to make up for 19 lost years, so all I did was study the Bible. So much so, literally only studied the Bible, neglected my homework, flunked out of Westmont College, got booted out of Westmont because my GPA was so low, 
And then when I applied to the master's college, they wouldn't let me in because my GPA was so low because I didn't study. I just studied the Bible. I'm like, dude, studying the Bible is the most spiritual thing you can do. You should let me in for free at this college. And uh, no, they didn't. But they had a one-year Bible degree program that you could get. So they let me do that. And then I proved myself, and then they made an exception, and that's how I got in there. But uh, just a desire to study the Bible from the time I was 19, and I knew, hmm, maybe I should be a, a priest. Oops, well, I would had the wrong worldview, and then somebody said, no, you're not a priest. We don't have priests in the Protestant church. You mean a pastor. What's that? Well, let me tell you. Anyway, so I uh, went to master's college, and that helped form my worldview, and so by the time I was a junior, I had majored in Bible, and I knew, I guess this is what you do. You go after this, you want to study the Bible and teach the Bible, you, you go to the seminary thing. So I guess I'll go to the seminary thing, whatever that is. So then graduating my senior year of the master's college, um, actually John MacArthur did our wedding, Debbie and I, and then we were in a session. At, it was May, and I'm about to graduate as a senior, and Pastor John asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, well, I want to go to seminary. He said, where are you going? And he just became the president of the master's seminary. And he's sitting there, well, where are, you, where are you going to seminary? And I said, to uh, some Baptist seminary in Tacoma, Washington. He said, why are you going there? What do you mean, why am I going there? I got a scholarship there. You should be going to the best seminary in the world. I said, well, well where's that? The master seminary. I said, well, I don't have a scholarship there. It costs money and I don't have any money. And he's, whoa, ye of little faith. <laughs> where you go to seminary is the third most important decision you will ever make in your life after choosing Jesus and the right wife wow, okay, I still don't have any money. Anyway, one, four days later, Thursday in the mail, I got a letter that said, Dear Cliff, have a great time at the Master's Seminary. Your first year's paid for. Love, John MacArthur. It's like, wow, I guess I'm going to the Master's Seminary. Anyway, so that's where it started, Karen. I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So went to seminary, graduated there, went to Christian schools, taught for four years at a Christian school, and then went to a Texas for three years at another Christian school. Um, and then after about seven, eight years, then I became a pastor, and that's kind of how it all happened. With that, we got to close. If you have other questions, you can ask me along the way. Really appreciate you being here. Encourage a friend, especially a member, to be here next week. Um, as we continue with our testimonies from our pastors and elders, next week is going to be Pastor Justin, who's going to share his story. Looking forward to that. Let me close this in a word of prayer and have a blessed day. See you back here at 11 o'clock for our corporate worship service. Father, we thank you for this day and your goodness to us. Thank you that for those of you who are your children, we all have a story, really an amazing story to tell, and it's of your grace, your goodness, how you use the circumstances of life, people around us, to give us the truth, the gospel we need to hear, that we might be prompted to be changed and to believe and trust in you. And I thank you that you did that in my life and everybody here who who knows you, and uh, we give you the glory for it. We commit this day to you, and we want you to be honored in it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all.